Good afternoon and welcome to the council. I'm your host, Charlie Pacello, and we are on a Saturday today, but we're having a very, very special event today. Uh, our guest is absolutely amazing. We're going to be getting diving into it here very shortly. But I just want to do a quick shout out to KUHS, Denver.com. KUHS is the stream. We are broadcasting here from the beautiful city of Denver, Colorado. We are the number one streaming service all in Colorado, and we are committed to providing our listeners with the best programming in the world. Outstanding talk shows, DJs in the studio, and we have some of the most talented uh, TV radio DJs out there and hosts, personalities, professionals, and programming you will find anywhere in the internet or traditional media. Our reach is, continues to go beyond just Colorado. We're touching people all across this nation and all around the world. People tune into the council from about 40 different countries, even more, on six different continents. We thank each and every one of you every week uh, who tune into the council uh, for trusting us to bring you the best programming we can each and every week to you. The council has... Uh, uh, gone into collaboration with the Trauma Sensitive Awareness Foundation, and we are doing a very special summit called the Veterans Summit Special Series here on KUHS TV Radio, and this is part one of a special 10-part interview series dedicated to providing veterans and their loved ones with information, hope, inspiration, and healing. This is the first of its kind summit uh, that it's going to be exploring cutting edge treatments and alternative therapies for PTS, TBI, moral injury, sleep disturbance, family conflict, emotional trauma, and so much more. Mental health experts, veterans, and their advocates are going to provide answers and resources and solutions to bring all of our warriors home. We're starting the dialogue. And we've been starting the dialogue for uh, like seven shows. This is our seventh show. So come on and enjoy the conversation. Learn more about part two that's going to be debuting in November. Uh, and we're doing this every Friday uh, through September 25th right here on KUHSDenver.com. Well, today we're going to be talking about uh, traumatic brain injury. And uh, I just wanted to, uh, before we... Uh, introduce my guest for today's show. I, I looked up some of the numbers that uh, of worldwide totals for our Department of Defense uh, members of the service that are being affected by traumatic brain injury. And worldwide totals uh, is about 383,947. Uh, that's uh, the 2018 uh, totals that uh, were part of the Department of Defense. And so there's a huge number of our veterans out there that are dealing with this issue uh, from mild conditions where it's a confused and disoriented state that lasts about 24 minutes, or excuse me, 24 hours, uh, a loss of consciousness for about 30 minutes, memory loss for about 24 hours, to severe, which is characterized by confusion and disoriented state, which lasts more than 24 hours. Uh, loss of consciousness of more than 24 hours or memory loss for more than seven days. Uh, and this, you can also go into penetrating TBI, which is an open head injury. And that's where the scalp or the skull or the dura matter uh, are penetrated. 
It's an issue that has been uh, troubling for so many, and, and it has led to a lot of people, um, unfortunately, taking their life because they didn't think there was any hope out there to relieve them of the pain that they've been going through and the suffering that they've been going through. And it is from the people that we are, you know, are, are trying to help. We want to help the people so that they know that there's alternative me- um, methodologies out there, alternative therapies out there that can help them to that this doesn't have to be a permanent injury, that there doesn't have to be something that they're left with for the rest of their lives, uh, taking a lot of medications, trying to manage the symptoms that they're dealing with because of the, the, of the TBI that they, they experienced. So today we are talking to someone who has experienced all of this and has come back from the brink. He's got a message, message to share with us that should inspire you and give you hope for a promising future out there uh, for many of you that are suffering from this very debilitating injury. I'd like to introduce to you my guest, Andrew Marr. He's United Army, excuse me, United States Army Special Forces, retired. He is a husband, father, retired Special Forces Green Beret, entrepreneur, and best-selling co-author of Tales from the Blast Factory, a brain-injured Special Forces Green Beret's journey back from the brink. That's this book right here. It's amazing. Uh, I had the privilege to be able to read it before the show. Uh, Really, really incredible journey and outstanding book. I can't recommend it more highly. His book has been turned into a full-featured documentary titled Quiet Explosions, Healing the Brain by a two-time Emmy-winning director to include a three-time Academy Award winner contributing to the production efforts as well. He is also the co-founder of the Warrior Angels Foundation with his brother Adam Marr, whose mission is to help other U.S. service members and veterans receive the same level of care he received. Andrew lives with his wife, Becky, the love of his life, and their seven children in the Los Angeles area. Their website is www.waftbi.org. That's www.waftbi.org. Andrew, welcome to the council. Charlie, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> well, after the journey that you have been on, sir, it is an honor that you're here. I'm so excited to get started into this conversation and the, um, the, the message of hope that you have for so many people. It's incredible. Um, before we get at it, let's, I, mean, I want to get right into it. Could you share just a little bit about your background, and Andrew, and why you joined the military? And, of course, why did you choose the, uh, the Green Berets? Yeah, um, I grew up in Texas, graduated high school in 2000. Um, I, I, my life revolved around being an athlete, uh, primarily in football, as they say, uh, football is king. Mm-hmm. Well, I got a college scholarship uh, to play football, played at Blinn Junior College and then Texas a and Kingsville, and was very much pursuing the things that I wanted to pursue in life. But after wrapping up my undergrad, had to look on to you know what's what's next to evolution the nfl wasn't calling so there wasn't a promising career in that end so i really uh, looked hard and deep about where i thought would be the best next thing for me now while i was in college i was able to pursue like i said the very thing that i wanted to be pursuing with my life when that was over i felt that and i, I always had this voice inside me uh, at the same time 
that there was gentlemen, men my own age that were putting their life on the line for the freedoms and the liberties that we get to experience in this country. And that always, it was there at the, uh, at the back of my mind. So when that, uh, when my future became open, so to speak, you know, that was just the next best thing to do, uh, as I saw it. And why specifically the military, why specifically special forces? Uh, well, quite frankly, there's no greater test than to test oneself in combat. Mm -hmm. um, having, you know, the only way you can experience that is to go out there and live it. So somewhat uh, ignorant perspective, but I wanted to test myself in combat because I believed in the mission and I believed, you know, you know, there takes certain type of individuals to put it on the line to defend, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and to defend the incredible freedoms that we have here, uh, right to express yourself, freedom of speech, things like that. Those were important to me. So that's how I segued into the military. Going back again into special forces, I looked I looked at, at all the different special operations arena. Uh, I liked that the uh, the ODAs, uh, as they call them in special forces, the operational attachment alphas was put together in a very similar team structure that I had known my entire life um, and how they were kind of masters of unconventional warfare working by with and through other indigenous forces to you know help solve a problem at the end of the day mm -hmm. and i thought that would be a good um a good carryover for what i've been doing and i could you know volunteer those skill sets and came over uh went right into special forces and i took to it like a fish in water <laughs> well i uh you know i think one of the things that you mentioned is that you know this love of service and being wanting to protect those freedoms and liberties and all the things that we take for granted. I mean, that was the reason I joined in the service as well. I mean, that was just something that was a part of me. It was, I don't, you can't even describe why you feel that way. You just do. And my dad was in the, was in the special forces in the Navy. He was in the, he was a Navy SEAL. So I certainly understand that, that, that passion, that desire and willingness to serve on the highest level possible. Um, and in your book, you have this beautiful thing, and, I, and I'd like to touch on it before we get into your journey here. Uh, you mentioned a passage in here, and it's right there at the beginning of the book, where you talk about your standard of performance, and that this had been a guiding force in your life. Whenever you needed it, whenever you, needed, you were going through a challenge or a circumstance that demanded the most of you, I would love for you to be able to share it uh, with the audience and, and how it has served your life. Yeah, you know, I, I think we all as humans, we need something to aim at, you know, we need that guiding light and, and that purpose, you know, and that's one aspect of it. So the, the second aspect of it is actually, you know, how do I, um, how do I ensure that my thoughts and my actions and my communication efforts are in alignment with my highest ideals? Mm -hmm. And that, and it really came forth more after I became a father, but it, it became imperative to me that, you know, what I do has consequences and I want to make the most out of my time. And I would like to live my life the way of the warrior uh, as if everything I did mattered and I put the highest standard that I could on it. And for me, it's pretty simple. It's to, it's to be able to look myself in the mirror at the end of the day and know that I contributed and performed to the very best of my abilities, that um, that I left everything I could out there, that I learned, I grew, I served, I loved 
to the very best, you know, and if it's time to go, I want to be able to look myself in the mirror and say, I put it out there, I left it all in the field and we can go on and get on with it. And uh, very rarely, if ever, do I live up to that, but that is the pursuit of something that I think allows me to, to be the best version of myself, which I think that's what we're all doing. So that was the importance of me, Charlie, to actually codify a standard of performance on how to conduct myself uh, in all matters of life. Andrew, and, and I think it's something that I, I think it's for all of us that are, are, you know, living, trying to live the best that we can and that teach our kids the same thing. Those things, those early values that you take with you, you know, being honest, being truthful, being forthright, uh, treating others the way you want to be treated, all those things that we inculcate early on when they're tested. Uh, we cling on to those things. We don't realize how important they can be until we're tested. And you certainly, my gosh, Andrew, you were tested like nobody that I have uh, met yet. And I would love for you to be able to start getting into um, your, your, your experience. Uh, but first, could you explain to the audience better than I did what traumatic brain injury is, um, how people can get it, and, and does, it, does it affect just military members? Yeah, great question. Uh, and again, you, uh, you kind of broke it off uh, in a really good way. You have what you call a major traumatic brain injury, and that's like you referenced earlier. That's a open wound, a fracture, massive bleeding or hemorrhaging. Like you can look at an individual and say, oh, oh dear God, that was, that was a massive head injury. So that's classified as a major traumatic brain injury. And it's usually uh, also accompanied by pretty prolonged loss of consciousness. Then what we have is what's called a minor traumatic brain injury, and there's nothing really minor about it, but it's just a classification um, system. And that's meaning that there's some type of blow jolt to the head from some external factor that's caused that brain to shake in the brain is housed in fluid and it's encased with your skull and it's floating in cerebral spinal fluid so any blow to that it can actually do what they call coup counter coup hit the front hit the back or hit the side go to another side well you know by definition every one of those are a head injury and then if you get into a car accident a slip and fall acceleration deacceleration fall from a ladder playing athletics, uh, normal daily activities, or in, uh, in the military setting, any type of you know, uh, frequent munitions training, explosives, and then we get into special operations where um, our guys are in very close proximity to surgical blasts throughout the entirety of his career. So all of these things can cause that brain to shake in there. And it's that uh, explosive energy, it's that force that kind of is uh, blown out in a 360 degree uh, area and it's, it's moving energy. So that's going to then have the ability to cause micro damage or tearing to some of the important uh, parts of the brain. Well, they're, they're all important, but what that can do, so we have two parts in Charlie. Mm -hmm. We have phase one of the injury, and that is the external blow causing that brain to shake. Um, and that's, there's different variations um, of the seriousness of that to like, you know, I just got a little bit of uh, ringing, I got my uh, bell rung, so to speak, or, you know, it's no big thing at all, and we just keep going about our day. 
The second part, phase two of the injury, is the silent part. It's the deadly part. It's also the invisible part. And here's what that entails. It entails that because there was those micro tears from the brain cells being, um, we'll just say, uh, ripped open a little bit by the sheer force, mm -hmm. that chemistry starts to leak. And now we have chemistry that was only supposed to be transported in very specific ways out in the open and that can be problematic and it can be this very slow insignificant leak and then that can grow over time to become very chronic and what we're talking about here is a process called inflammation or neuroinflammation and when that becomes chronic when that becomes a uh a something that has gone it's been turned on chemistry has been turned off and now it's not turning uh, turned on it's not being turned off we have the makings for a very big problem because that interrupts the cell-to-cell -cell communication. It can cause those brain cells to die. It can be, cause you to become deficient in all the important chemistry that runs the body. So, you know, that's a little bit of different classification of head injuries as we know it. And it's important, Charlie, because oftentimes it's not just this one serious blow to the head and I have a minor traumatic brain injury and it's easy to tell at that time, and I know to go get treatment. Oftentimes, it's something that happens that's rather inconspicuous and not thought to be a big deal, and the individual doesn't become symptomatic till months or uh, even years later. Wow. And again, that's with that slow, insidious uh, part of the leaking of that chemistry. So, and, and again, like we've seen this in football very many times now, and it's, it's, it's crystal clear, we take these subconcussive hits to the head mm -hmm. over and over and over in a person's career, and they have, when they die, something that's a chronic traumatic encephalopathy, encephalopathy CTE, which is really a fancy word for a brain injury. Mm -hmm. um, but we know that it doesn't take those just one big, huge blows. It can be the, I don't know, the entire uh, recordings of somebody's history of that, those subconcussive blows that can cause somebody to become symptomatic and their life to become completely, completely derailed from having any quality of life. And the reason that's difficult uh, for a lot of reasons is if somebody becomes symptomatic and there's no physical injuries or visible wounds on their body, so it becomes at that point very difficult to diagnose. And that's when we can get in the, in the troubling um, phase of, of symptom management. But, you know, that's some background overview on, on, on TBI. Anything you want to parse out there, Charlie? I want to jump kind of uh, into the, the story. Well, yeah, I, I would love, you know, just it was, when, when you talk about it, you mentioned football players. And I know that, uh, I mean, shoot, I played football for many, many years. You, you talked about it. So even an injury that you had, and then we'll get into your story, even an injury that you may have had, like a concussion or something that happened where you were knocked out. Cause I know that happened cause I, I tried to play linebacker and mm -hmm. I had a much smaller physique. You guys are a lot bigger than I was, but uh, you know, but I had a big heart and so I would hit, but I remember having some of those sometimes could that just having one of those experiences create uh, you were talking about um, that there's a rupture that happens or there's a tear that happens in the, in the brain. Can even just having one of those create uh, in the long term a, 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 a TBI, a traumatic brain injury? Uh, in short, yes. The NFL did a study and they released it several years back and they said that um, if a player was to have even one concussion on the field, 
they were something on the order of 17 times more likely to develop early stage uh, Alzheimer's between the ages of 30 to 49. So that's with one concussion, puts you at a 17 times more likely risk of developing early set Alzheimer's. Whoa, whoa, that's unbelievable. Holy moly, I had not, no not, idea. Not, not my number, not my study, that's, that's the NFL. And, and uh, yeah. so I don't have the reference on top of my head, but it's an easy thing to go fact check. Holy moly, I didn't realize that. And you know, I think that as people become more aware of the, I guess, the, uh, the severity of the issue, the problem of the issue, the pervasiveness of it, that will start to make better choices in the future about some of the, the things that we do. But nonetheless, you, I, wanted, I want you to go into your, into your tours in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you served honorably. Uh, there are multiple tours. What you did, I, um, my goodness, uh, just much respect, sir. And uh, I would just love if you could take us back a little bit to the event or events that led to uh, your traumatic brain injury. Yeah, so, you know, there's... I was in a, well, going back. So I was in special forces, like you said, because of the, um, that level of specialization and what that uh, job requirement calls for, those type of trained individuals are in and around countless explosions. That just comes with the territory. Mm -hmm. Many times we're on the, uh, the proactive end, um, and, but you're still receiving that recidivative blast wave. And many times where you can be on the, you know, unfortunate end of that. Um, so I was, uh, one of my roles was uh, being a breacher. So I would put explosive charges, um, you know, doors, windows, walls, whatever the situation called for. And we'd get back to what we call a minimum safe distance and, and blow those charges. But you don't just go and say, hey, I'm going to do this in combat under, you know, uh, gunfire and real life situation without like, doing it, done it hundreds of times in a, in a training environment. So you can become proficient to do that at the highest level with the highest stakes. So for anybody who does that in the real world in a combat scenario has probably gone through it, you know, a hundred times minimum, minimum. Um, so, and, and I was no different. So because I had played football from the age of 10 all the way through college, you know, I, I had a number of, of blows to the head, but had never had any issues go into special forces and what are you doing? You're jumping out of planes, you're shooting all the time, you're doing explosive work, you're doing uh, combatives, uh, jujitsu, things like this to become the best that you can be at your job so you can perform when the time comes to perform and accomplish the mission and you know as important bring the people to the left and right of you home. So you know with that puts you at high risk, that just comes with the territory high risk of being on the receiving end or, or having multiple head injuries. So there's no way that we can accurately say, well, you know, this is the number of head injuries this individual had. We can just say they were exposed to an environment that was conducive to um, uh, allowing, you know, this type of, these type of things to, to become more susceptible to. So I went from very resilient to, because of the course of all those things I just listed out, becoming less and less resilient uh, internally. So being able to bounce back from things like that. So uh, multiple rotations through Afghanistan and, and other theaters like, like everybody else. And um, my last deployment was in 2013 and uh, sixth, seventh month deployment. It was uh, the, the most fiercest uh, combat 
uh, of my career. We were out in Wardak province and, you know, it was a uh, wild, wild west out there. Yeah. And it was great from the operational experience and, and full spectrum of going out there and actually getting to do your job and to see a real difference uh, taking place on the ground and seeing that actually benefit a community in real time. So it was very rewarding in that sense. Never had any issues or symptoms on that trip that I know that I know of because we get in such a state when you're in that high level of uh, operations that your job you've done it so many times you don't really have to think about it because it's not new to you it's hard brained it's it's in, it's wired into your system you know how to operate there's some variables there but for the most part you're prepared to do those variables you can you're almost on autopilot and that allows you to make bigger more crucial decisions when when the time comes so, um, you know, I was involved in one uh, significant explosion there that did knock me out. As a matter of fact, that was the only time I ever lost consciousness in my entire Special Forces career, but it was brief. And I came back to, and, you know, rocket RPGs are coming in and bullets are whizzing and flying by. And at first, I didn't know where I had no concept of time, myself, uh, space, um, no spatial awareness. I thought I was inside of a building that had got, uh, had just was in an earthquake or something. I, I literally had no idea. I just came to and I'm this point of consciousness in a completely black setting where I have no visibility. That's because of the explosion and that was, you know, in like ground zero, so to speak. But um, as when bullets start to fly and I start to get some more awareness about me, like I said, I just go right back into doing the job, doing what we needed to do. And in that case, it was, you know, getting the team that was on that X, so to speak, and uh, breaking contact and fighting back, you know, to our team so we could live to play another day, you know, and that was the case. And then we went on about business as usual on our normal op tempo, and it's about maybe the midway point uh, of, of that um, rotation. So another three to four months of hard combat, you know, on the end of that. Got to the end of that, came back home and was absolutely fine and had no symptoms till about six months after my return from that last trip. And the first things that I started to experience where I was like, okay, man, like this is different was twofold. One, I had a, a complete loss of libido and then two, uh, a complete loss of energy for somebody who is a very high energy, you know, individual. I'm not talking about like, oh, I'm having trouble, you know, getting out of the bed uh, in the morning. Like I'm talking about not having the physical ability it felt like to do anything and being relegated to the bed. So with the uh, loss of the libido, it's very troubling in the home front because <laughs> I've been gone for a number of months. Now I come home, my wife is beautiful. I couldn't be more attracted to her then and, and even so now, baby. And, um, and, and that became very, you know, difficult for her because, and, and what out there, I, you can, you can understand her perspective. Her thinking is like, we've never experienced anything like this. This in my head means one of two things. One, he's not attracted to me anymore or two, there, there must be somebody else. And we had to kind of navigate that terrain as I'm starting to now have some new and difficult things that I'm experiencing internally. And now my mindset is like, man, this is great. Like I come home from a very psychological and, and physically taxing deployment. Um, I'll just leave it at that. And then have to come into this scenario 
here at the house. I'm like, this is the last thing I need. <laughs> and then it was like more symptoms started to present themselves. So at first it was, it was more with, um, I would say like, uh, my, my, my psychology. And again, I'm very, my entire life history, very optimistic, very upbeat, very, you know, let's for the best situation, the best out of the situation. Let's figure out how to solve this problem. Let's be proactive. Let's be solutions based. And all of a sudden I started to become overwhelmed by a newfound uh, depression. And this was uh, entirely foreign to me. And I, I also felt I couldn't put my finger on it because here I am, I'm in my early 30s. I'm, I'm at the, the tip of the spear as far as what I want to do professionally and earn my uh, at the table, so to speak. Um, married to the woman of my dreams, we had the family we always want. I, I'm not hung up on anything I did operationally. And now I'm walking around as if to find out my, my ODA had been uh, murdered this morning. That was what I felt like inside. Or to wake up and to find out that your family had just been murdered. Yeah. I, I, how do you rationalize that? I'm like, I have no reason to feel this. This I don't want to feel like this. This doesn't make any sense. So that was the first type of thing I think like, man, like there's some things going on here that's not adding up. There's not a, there's not a scratch on my body. And then yeah, I started to become plagued with anxiety, you know, and I thought before being on the receiving end of these things that this was just a weak-minded person's problem. Right. Um, I thought, you know, I'm physically, I'm a, I'm a mentally tough person. Like this doesn't happen to mentally tough people. This doesn't happen to Green Berets. And then it started <laughs> right. to happen to me. And that just shows the ignorance. Uh, on, on my part, but but that's where my mind was at, and I started to experience it firsthand. And again, this wasn't a conscious decision where I was saying, "Hey, man, let me go out in public and let me break down and have a panic attack in the weight room of our gym. Mm -hmm. Let me do this at the grocery store. Let me do this in front of my children at home." Like that wasn't a choice, and it was like a runaway gun when it came on. The thing just had to run its course. And I just kind of had to sit back and, and bear witness to this occurrence going through me that I, I am observing but have no conscious control over. Mm -hmm. Started to think that I was actually losing my mind. And because uh, it's happening on a fairly routine basis now. And so that was so foreign to me, Charlie, that the only thing that I knew to do, well, one, I'm not going to talk about it because we don't do that. And then two, the only thing I could really think to do at that point was to, to drink because that was the only thing mm -hmm. for short-term strategy that would stop this incredible um, anxiety uh, panic attack and would kind of numb that out. And because it became so frequent, frequent I had to turn my drinking up to drinking from the moment I woke up in the morning till the moment I passed out in the evening wow. as also trying to somewhat be a functional operator and, um, you know, have, have a wife and child. And I think it got what, so what made you raise your hand and ask for help? I got to the point where I was drinking so much, drinking and driving. I'm talking about drinking, going into work, 
drinking, uh, leaving work, going, pulling over at the class six for anybody who's not there as military, that's the liquor store that we have mm -hmm. on base, mm -hmm. getting it, buying a bottle of whatever, and just drinking it straight from the bottle as I'm driving home and, and I'm crying, you know, as well. But I realized at that point, well, one, two things. One, at that point, driving, I, I knew what I was doing was wrong and I didn't even care. I was like, it, is, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And then, Two, I realized, you know, when I had some some small moments of clarity, like this behavior is absolutely unacceptable and it doesn't seem like I'm, I'm in any control over it. And that's the point I went to the command. I'm like, listen, I don't know what to tell you guys, mm -hmm. but this is the state of affairs and this is this is where I'm at. I, I, I've been around a lot of blasts. I, I, I don't know how else to connect this, but I'm not I'm not hung up on anything I want, I've done operationally. I want to keep doing what I've been doing because that drives a tremendous sense of meaning and purpose in my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd like to just figure out how we solve this problem and get back to it, you know? And so that was kind of the, the first, uh, the beginnings of how this very, you know, dark force reared its ugly head and, and just, uh, you know, came close to obliterating me and my family. Incredible. Uh, and it was so uncharacteristic of your experience as a person, as a Green Beret to come in, come back. And all of a sudden you see your whole life starting to kind of fall apart. The loss of the libido, the loss of uh, the anger episodes, the drinking and driving, all of those things were totally uncharacteristic of who you are as a person than who you mm -hmm. were before you got the, the TBI. And and it seems to me that that is a common pattern that a lot of veterans have who have experienced a, a traumatic brain injury. And when the military was able to finally, you know, examine you and look at you and talk to you, what, what did they diagnose you with? I mean, I, in your book, you talk about like uh, you had, you know, 20 different diagnoses. I mean, it was seems like it was they were just reaching. They really didn't know what was going on with you. What they were trying to do was to pin something on with you and hope that it stuck. Yeah. You know, as things evolved, uh, it started to become and have a whole multitude of symptoms, symptomatology. So in addition to loss of libido, energy, um, depression, anxiety, like you said, this overwhelming uh, occurrence of rage. Mm -hmm. And it would, that was not in a, a socially appropriate response to add by any means. Like the situation just did not dictate a response like that. Mm -hmm. And, but yet I would, I would produce one and um, with, with sometimes disastrous consequences. Again, it seemed like I was just a, a passenger to this other individual that was going off at on it. Then I started to really have issues with my cognition. Um, and I'm probably already having problems with my cognitive processing and obviously my ability to make good decisions, mm -hmm. but that became more and more pronounced as I went from having a, a rough time with uh, medium term and short term memory. Um, for instance, and I, I know a lot of people are hearing this, and I'm, I'm hoping lights are going off because I hear this a lot of times. But um, driving home, uh, finding myself pulled over on the side of the road, and I, I, it's again like I came to in that explosion that I was talking about earlier, 
and I just have no idea where I'm at. I have no understanding of my surroundings. I have no understanding of where I'm going. And it takes me, you know, three, four or five minutes to kind of uh, figure out like, okay, like, what, what am I, where am I at? Where, what am I doing? You know, where, what, what's going on? That's an incredibly uh, lonely and difficult experience to have when it starts occurring in frequent intervals. So I started to lose the ability to recall everyday normal vocabulary, vocabulary that's typical to my, my job skills, vocabulary that's difficult just in communicating, trying to say, hey, I'm gonna pick up, would you, could you pass me this pen? And I couldn't figure out how to articulate that this was a pen. I had some, uh, had to go get some x-rays, for instance, and they handed me um, the, uh, the robe to put on. And um, I could not figure out how to put my arms in it. Like it just didn't register. I'm actually trying to put it, put them through my, my legs because I couldn't do the processing to figure out like, okay, this is a robe. This is where my arms go. It's open in the back, put it on, tie it go have the x-rays and, and my mind just couldn't process that. And then of course, when I couldn't do that, I, you know, I become abusive and, and violent to the people that are around there actually trying to help me because I'm frustrated and I, and I can't understand it. So, you know, these other cog cognitive processes that I've been able to be, you know, at the forefront of, at least from an academic and a professional level, uh, now it's, it's out the window. Um, and I was like, I was once an intelligent person and it seems like I, I can't, so now I can't focus anymore. Mm -hmm. I have, I am unable to focus my attention to read a sheet of paper and I can't understand it for the life of me. And like I said, when I was in short-term memory, we were at uh, one of those um, neuropsychological assessments where they put, you know, seven basic shapes in front of you. You look at each one and I think you get 20 seconds or maybe 10 seconds and then you recite seven simple shapes. I couldn't recall after one shape. And cool. we did that about five times in a row. Again, you know, so these are just the things. And then I started to have the physiological problem. So I went from having, um, you know, a, a class three or four headache on a scale of one to 10 to having a migraine every day and those migraines would then drive um, blurry vision, it would blur my vision, then I would go into double vision. And uh, from there, I started to have um, balance issues and all these other type of uh, chronic health conditions that just started to arise. And again, like if you looked at me, I look, look like the epitome of a, a healthy individual without a visible wound or scar on my body. So it just doesn't make sense. So, you know, my command wanted nothing to support me. They just, they didn't know how to deal with that situation. So, you know, um, they did the best they could. They said, okay, man, like we need to see some specialists because, you know, and, uh, we're, we're out of the domain of, of what we know to do. So I started going and seeing a lot of different specialists. And this is why I started to become really unhappy with the, uh, the, the, the military medical models, so to speak. And, and I want to, I want to caveat that with saying I think everybody's doing the absolute best they can. I so, agree. Uh, no, I absolutely agree. My book. Yep. No, I'm not trying to throw dirt on anything. I'm, but what we're hopefully doing, Charlie, by having these conversations is not just calling out what we have, have problems with, but talking about some viable solutions, which absolutely. Know, I promise there, there's, there's some solutions based uh, conversations that to be had here. Uh, with Charlie and I talking, um, but but that was my that was where I was I was unhappy. I'm going to I'm seeing all these different specialists. So you have problem with the vision, go to the vision doctor. We have a problem 
with your hand, you go to the neurologist, go see the psychologist because you're having anxiety and depression. And, and, and so I had where it got to be like six or seven different specialists, um, all highly specialized in their individual areas. But it became apparent to me that there was one, there was no cross communication between these specialists. Mm -hmm. Two, it seemed to be like each specialist looked at, at, looked at a piece of a pie, like they had this sliver of it. And if there wasn't something that they could identify or pin as maybe being the underlying condition or a condition that contributed uh, these symptoms, it was just like, well, let's manage symptoms. Let's check the mark here mm -hmm. and let's send you on down the road to the, to the next office. And another thing that really, really got at me was it would take, you know, two to four weeks to get an appointment and then another two to four weeks to get a follow up what happened in that appointment. And I was like, man, this, like, like nothing is happening in the time and fashion that it needs to, to drive a proper one assessment and then two, a treatment program, you know? So that was kind of the state of affairs there. And I, and they, I was put on about six medications, some anti-anxiety and, and antidepressive and, um, you know, to help, some to help you sleep and some to help you wake up and some for anti-seizure and, and, and things of, things of this nature. And then I started to notice, man, like I was having some disastrous side effects mm -hmm. from those medications. Now I look back at it and I realize like there's no risk matrix, a drug risk matrix seems to be to me that uh, it's being assessed when you're putting it into on all of these different uh, pharmaceuticals and that absolutely interrupts the body's ability to process and, and function. So we were able to go, uh, so it became apparent like, hey man, like nothing's working here for Andrew. I found out about uh, NICO, the National Incent uh, Center, Intrepid Center of Excellence. Am I thinking that national? Uh, yes, Intrepid Center of ICO. And that was in uh, Walter Reed. And that's the Department of Defense's premier uh, establishment to uh, help our service members identify and uh, treat their injuries. And then they work with your care, care, your providers back at your base on a you know treatment plan. Mm -hmm. So I was very, um, very happy to get out there. It's a four week uh, program there uh, in Bethesda at Walter Reed and really man like that was for me like the nail in the coffin for my career because I was able to get all this high level um, testing done and the takeaway was when I when I brought back that medical analysis to my unit it was like hey man Andrew based off of this large body of of work and all, everything now it's in your medical file you can we cannot afford to have one more blow to the head like we it could be fatal we don't know what that would be able to do. You know what I mean? And I went from six medications when I there to leaving being on 13. So I felt like, you know, in one way I was vindicated because, you know, there was no, there was no doubt that, you know, what I was experiencing was real. It wasn't just in my mind. And that would have been a lot about um, the internal struggle I was having. I was like, man, am I, am I for some reason just like, I'm breaking inside and this is the result. And and what if they don't find anything? What if they don't find anything? And I have all these other problems and we can't identify you know, what to do about any of them. At least at that point, it, it became very real, even though the uh, solution set to me wasn't a solution set. But at that point I was like, okay, well, at least we know that you know I, I'm not making this up. It's, mm -hmm. it's validated and, 
but that put him past being retired from the Army at that point. Well, it sounds very much like you were uh, fighting a war within that uh, it was a daily battle that uh, so many veterans, thousands of veterans are going through, and you're just trying to find answers. You know there's something wrong. And uh, just basically, just from what you've described, uh, what it, just the, the courage that it takes to get through that and for your family to be there behind you and to stand beside you and, and your and your and your. Uh, wife and children. I mean, it, it, it's, it takes a toll. And but we want to get in the in the last half of this of this uh, of the show to talk about some of the hope that's behind it. And I would love for you to be mm-hmm. able to kind of talk about how you came to the the hormonal therapy and uh, the Gordon protocol. What brought you to you know what was your journey to getting from this point here? where you were at your lowest. What was that turning point? And then what led you to this amazing therapy that uh, uh, I believe is called the, the Gordon Protocol, correct? Yeah, correct. Uh, you know, I got to this uh, place where I'd become overwhelmed by everything that was happening. And I had become wrapped up and consumed by the, the, the conditions in my life. And, and almost thinking that um, it was very unfair that I had to live this um, and I was dealt this hand. And that was my mindset, you know, I'm just, I'm living this unfair reality, having, uh, causing disastrous effects at home in my family, seeing the, how that is playing out and the damage that it's having on my wife and my children. And, and you know, being in a point where you put a gun in your mouth and you think like, the best decision I think I could make would be to pull this trigger right here and because at least that would end the suffering that they're having to endure. And that's when I realized so many other people in special forces, how they had got to that point because we also had a tough time internalizing how people could take their own life. And it wasn't until I got to that point where I, I understood it. Uh, my son became very ill, 13, he was 13 months at the time. Uh, I actually missed his birth. My previous deployment, and uh, he had a what's called a lymphatic malformation. So he had this huge growth in his neck. Now it was about the size of a kidney bean, and he had an infection, and very it swelled up to about the size of baseball. He had about uh, six or six different surgeries, and it was just a very traumatic process. Um, when that first happened and we took him to the emergency room, my wife is nine months pregnant with uh, our boy Jojo. My son Jay's there, 13 months old. He's having trouble breathing. He has a huge growth that has uh, occurred in his neck over the span of about four hours. Wow. I had this incredible pain in my calf um, that's going on, uh, on for a couple of days, but you know we just drive on. So we get to the emergency room, we get my son in there he goes into emergency surgery my wife becky goes into labor to give uh, birth to our son and i'm going back and forth between like the third floor and the fifth floor of the hospital and at this point my leg is not working because it's in so much pain so i'm dragging my leg uh, back and forth to go and try to be with both as much as i can or our boy jace comes through um, the surgery and he's in a relatively good state my wife is able to give birth to Jojo and my, uh, one of my sons, and he's in very good shape. They're in good shape. 
And um, we actually, the, the care team actually at this point is able to talk me into going and getting imaging on my calf. So they do take an image of it. They find what's called a deep vein thrombosis. It's a blood clot. And it's so massive and I, I had sat on it so long that it broke off and then it traveled into both lungs. It's called a bilateral pulmonary embolism. And so at this point, this is, it has a very high mortality rate. And um, we were honestly not sure if, if you're gonna make it. And, um, and I, I had been drinking through the whole ordeal because that's just how I, I, I dealt with things. So I was pouring airplane whiskey bottles into drinks I was drinking. So I actually thought that was very funny. And I was like, hey man, if this, thing, this thing's gonna kill me, you guys gotta get lined because there's a lot of people that want, you know, claim to that title. But um, <laughs> they rushed me in there. Um, I, I'm in the hospital for the better part of two weeks, come out on the other end uh, of the blood clots. My son, like I said, had six or seven surgeries on his neck. So I remember being there, you know, it just it's like the absolute most difficult experience of my life to, to watch a, a young child suffer and them not to know why, you know, take, take me out of you know, we can do whatever and, and experience whatever. But to see my boy suffer the way he did really, really tore at me. And for the first point ever, it became abundantly clear to me as I'm with him in his, he's in the, um, he's in the ICU. He's in the ICU where at Seattle Children's just had that, uh, we just had that uh, massive, big surgery to remove the growth, a, a, a very big deal. And uh, what became clear to me, Charlie, was I was of no value, zero value to that boy, the rest of my children, or my family. And it became absolutely clear, crystal clear, that the only place that that was going was towards an early grave. And if I said I loved all this, like I did, it was time to man up and to do something about it. And that's the point where I decided to no longer become a victim to my circumstance, to be defined by my adversity. At that point, I went and made that decision to go back to our foundational training in the military to embrace that current level of pain. But that time, my decision was to channel it in the proper direction and to act on it to improve my situation and that's what's put me on a path to say i'm not going to accept this life sentence that's been to me you're on these 13 medications you have these 33 different uh diagnoses and um behavioral issues and psychological issues and cognitive issues i was like i, I don't care about any of that anymore i'm going to do three things one i'm going to return to the man of my pre-injury status two i'm going to find a way to come off all this medication and as soon as those two were accomplished and I was gonna accomplish them, the third thing was I was gonna devote the rest of my life to turning around and helping others who were in the exact same situation that I was in. And that being on a new path, a new course, a new way of thinking, a new mode of being. And that's where I went out and started to look for alternative modalities, alternative therapies. And I signed up and I went through them all. And I didn't care if it cost me $2 million cost us a lot of money, bankrupt us, but I didn't care. So we're gonna find a way out of it. We're gonna find a way to get better. We're gonna accomplish those things that we're gonna accomplish. That way of thinking actually led me to Dr. Gordon. Dr. Gordon is a world-renowned neuroendocrinologist. Yeah, I read an article about me and uh, reached out and basically said, hey, Andrew, I've been in the field of neuroendocrinology. We've been treating TBI for a number of years. We've had everything we do is science and evidence-based. Here's some of the science, here's some of the evidence, here's some stuff that you can watch on it, educate yourself, 
If you're interested, let me know and I'll tell you how the process works. Watched a podcast that he was on, and at that point, I never even knew what I didn't even know what a podcast was. But I was like, okay, you know, it's not like some kind of space word, right? Like, I know. Watching watch, watch hear a podcast, but, you know, right. what I'm hearing him right. talk about, he's like, listen, he's, uh, he brought a guy on there, a military guy who had a minor traumatic brain injury, a number number of them, and he was basically everything he was saying was what I was living. But Mark was able to say, this is why. And this is why we can assess this objectively. We have a advanced neuroendocrine panel, blood panel, looks at specific things in the brain, in the body. And it tells us what the body is actually doing today, right now. Mm. We don't have to look behind. We don't have to look at any of these other imaging. We can tell how the systems are running based off these unique biomarkers. Then we can, and by, by the way, I can look at those and I can tell you exactly to the T what your symptoms are and what that means for your life and they were able to do that when they did my labs but um but the the really what was just blew my mind was not only can we identify it not only can we identify it objectively we have a pretty robust and natural way to go about and do two things one reduce that neurochronic inflammation both in the brain and the body and then two replace what we'll call neurosteroids back to their physiological levels. Now we've all heard about things like hormones, like testosterone, estrogen, and things like that. But what you need to know and what not, what is not widely known, because I guess it doesn't need to be, is we have hormones that are produced below the neck. We have hormones that are produced above the neck, above the neck called neurosteroids. Now these modulate communication and interactions in real time. The ones below the neck come from a sending a signal from here to say the testicles and that starts uh, testosterone to be produced. Well, that kind of effect can take hours, but the neurosteroids, they operate in real time and, uh, and inhibit or uh, enable the intercellular communication. Mm -hmm. When that becomes interrupted, well, we see all these symptoms that I talked about earlier. So then we can become a very personalized dialed in treatment plan based solely on my unique physiological biochemical individuality so personalized medicine and go treat those underlying conditions and those deficiencies or insufficiencies now when that was applied to me well today i'm performing as good if not better than my pre-injury status wow. we started up our our own organization the Warrior Angels Foundation, and today we've delivered that since 2015 to over 450 other individuals directly, and then indirectly people who've went out and gotten the care on their own, thousands. And we've replicated results just like mine hundreds and hundreds of times. And so that is the message that we're talking about here. The message is, is let's not let's not guess let's be precise about it let's not guess let's test and that's the whole the whole conversation about having let's do a proper assessment and a proper treatment protocol that's based solely on my unique needs my personal needs and that's personalized medicine and that's been the the underlying catalyst for me to now be where i'm in, i'm at where 
2014, I basically thought I was done with life to today, you know, I've graduated, I've done my business training at both Stanford and Pepperdine's graduate schools of businesses. Um, we've been very successful with what we wanted to do with the foundation, with helping countless other people, with, you know, briefing this information to the Surgeon General of the Ministry of Defense in the UK, or talking to high level officials here, or, or figuring out a way that we can actually scale this. We've trained over additional um, physicians in this advanced methodology since 2015. We wrote the book and the book's turning into, uh, well, the quiet explosions will come out this fall, all for the single strategy of educating other people who were suffering the same way that I was, but not just raising our hand and banging the drum about a bunch of awareness or a bunch of problems, although that important fourth step to bring scientifically um, and, and evidence, scientific, viably, viable evidence uh, backed by science, those type of solutions that we could re replicate, you know, to the public. So, uh, Charlie, that, that's been, that's been that, that, that journey is going from that, that level to we've lost everything, to making a decision, to turn it around, to not care what the special quote had to say about it, to not care what the specialist had to say about it or what anybody else had to say about it and to figure out a way to get better and to turn that around and to make it available to other people. So that's been that incredible journey. And if you're out there and you're saying, this sounds very similar to the rough patches that I have, I'm telling you, this is not my story. This is the story mm -hmm. for a lot of us military individuals. And you don't just have to be a military or veteran to experience these things. That's so fantastic. I mean, the, the recovery, I mean, and the fact that you have been able to replicate this, that it wasn't just an, an isolated incident, that this actually by increasing and looking at your whole profile the, and understanding the, the it's the hormonal imbalance, correct, that you're looking at that is being produced by the endocrine system. And getting that profile and then upgrading, increasing, do you, is it a shot? Is it something, you know, that uh, if I have a low testosterone, for example, uh, and testosterone is, is connected to my libido and I have low libido, is it a shot that I get or is it a combination of different hormones? How does, what is, the, what is if, if someone, if I was coming to you, what would, uh, what would I have to go through in order to, to get my profile done? Yeah, so the right thing you want to do is you want to find a provider who is um, proficient in, in neuroendocrinology or treating uh, traumatic brain injury uh, hormonally. Now, it, it is, uh, it could, uh, well, I'll, I'll start this with saying, man, I'm not a doctor, so take that as well. I'm just sharing my experience. Yeah. But this body is this delicate, you know, symphony going on there. Now, we can identify that there is a deficiency in testosterone. I think what's more important would be to identify why is there a deficiency in testosterone and are there environmental considerations that we can put in play to optimize that without ever having to take any foreign substance. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have overwhelming damage to your hypothalamus and the pituitary, well, odds are it's not going to be able to stimulate those things and make testosterone in the way it's supposed to. Mm -hmm. Now, here's a difference from a lot of you put testosterone in the body, it's going to cause some downstream and some upstream uh, effects on those because everything is at symphony, there's feedback loops. Mm -hmm. What we know is there's like, there's one thing that that can, that can potentially burn out um, called DHEA if that is not uh, identified and supplemented correctly. So you can't just give somebody testosterone 
and then not properly monitor or observe the entire system and how that symphony is, is continuing to conduct itself. So that's where that personal personalized uh, part of the medicine is so important. So what do you have to do? You have to get the proper assessments and you have to do them routinely and you have to have somebody who's competent. Now, um, you can find a lot of information on our website, waftbi.org, and you can link to our medical provider and all of his um, uh, websites. And, you know, we have a wealth of content out there where you can educate yourself and actually find a provider um, that's probably close to your uh, ge geographical location mm -hmm. where you can get this level of care. And a lot of what we do today is virtually virtual uh, through telehealth. So virtually, uh, in, in a very real terms, um, there's a way for you to uh, receive this level of care. So like I said, we trained over 500 providers and um, you can get that uh, provider network through Dr. Gordon, our medical director's website, which you can find uh, probably in our show notes or, or our website, waftbi.org. It's fantastic. Andrew, Andrew, this has been a, such an incredible, I, I wish we could talk for another hour uh, because I think this is such important information for people to, to know, for veterans out there and their families or, who are, or are struggling with TBI, that there is hope uh, out there for them. And uh, I think it's just, uh, what a miracle. It's, it's truly a miracle, sir. Thank you. Uh, folks, can you stay just a couple minutes? I want to ask, I always end the shows with one last question. I'd love to have your input on that. Um, but I do want to make sure that you recognize, folks, the incredible people that we are bringing on this series, uh, all to help you out, all to give you the resources, the information that you need to overcome, whatever it is it may be, whether it's PTS, whether it's TBI, whether it's other injuries, sleep disturbance. Come to this program, this series, this special Veterans Summit series that the council has partnered up with for the Trauma Sensitive Awareness Foundation. It's a special 10-part series uh, that's bringing information, hope, inspiration, and healing. We're exploring cutting-edge treatments and alternative therapies, hearing pioneering veterans and mental injury experts. We're finding hope for PTS, TBI, moral injury, sleep disturbance, family conflict, emotional trauma, and so much more. Part 2 debuts in November at www t-saf.org that's t-saf.org i also want to do a quick shout out again to kuhs denver thank you henry and everybody here at kuhs we are the stream broadcasting here in beautiful colorado all across this nation all around the world Thank you for tuning in to KUHS. We are growing exponentially, and it's because of you and your listenership all around the world that is making KUHS becoming one of the most important voices anywhere out there on the Internet and traditional media. So thank you, folks. Uh, Andrew, uh, sir, it has been an honor and a privilege to meet you and to hear your story and to be able to share it with all of us. Uh, and I would love for you, because you have had such a a breadth of experience, real life experience. And one of the questions I always ask my guests before we close out the show is if you could give one bit of advice, one bit of wisdom from your life experience, what would it be? That's uh, a tough one, Charlie. I, I think um, I, I would say that, that, that history shows that we as humans have the ability to to elevate our internal state to be greater 
than our external circumstances and environment. Mm -hmm. And if you can remember that and apply yourself to the best of your ability, things are going to work out the way that they're supposed to. It's fantastic. Andrew, sir, thank you so much. Thank you so much for being with us today on the show. Folks, um, we are uh, the council is adjourned. We will be back next week. We've got another amazing guest that's going to be on the show. You want to tune in next Friday, September 11th for our next show. May you all be well. May you all be free of pain and suffering. May you all be whole. God bless everyone. We will see you next Friday.